Today we are reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. It should be on the screens. We've got those working. If you want to use the pew Bibles in front of us, it is all the way on page 10. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Thank you, Jacob. Morning, church. All of us, in one way or another, feel some sort of insufficiency or deficiency about ourselves at one level or another, right? Whether it's mental, emotional, physical, there, there's something in our lives, a situation that we face that makes us feel less than we wish it would. Right? I used to think that I was really good at connecting with people emotionally really fast and effectively until uh, I became a husband and a pastor and found out that this is actually much more difficult than I thought and I have a long way to go until I grow to be more like Jesus. And that's just like a really little example. There's much bigger examples in this room. People are struggling with uh, infertility like we're about to see in this text. People have lifelong diseases or pain they're going through. There are 10,000 things that make us and cause us to feel insufficient in one way or another. And there's this gap that grows and develops. The way we wish we were and the way we are. And that gap can be bigger and smaller for different people, different points in life. And that gap leads to often what we experience as anxiety and depression. Now, a biblical word I think that gets at that experience is fear. And so all of us are walking through this life with different levels of anxiety and depression, different levels of fear. And would you know that the most frequent command in all of the scriptures is do not be afraid. All of us feeling fear, the biggest command, the most frequent command in all the Bible from start to finish, if you counted it all up, is do not be afraid. So how do we reckon with that? How do we reckon with the fact that we walk through life with these feelings of insecurity and the Bible, God, commands us not to let those things grip us and control us? Well, we're going to turn to the life of Abram. We're going to take a look at his fears. We're going to take a look at his insecurities. And we're going to take a look at God's solution for him 
and God's solution for us. Now, where we arrive at this point in the story, Abram is just crushing it. He's passing test after test. He's generous with Lot. He goes to war for the right reasons. He wins. Then he refuses the spoil because he wants to be faithful to God rather than take the wealth of the world for himself. And so what we see here is a man who's had a stunning string of victories and successes. He's on the trajectory upward. All right, he's about, not in this text, he's going to have a fall soon, and he's going to have to deal with that. But right now, things are looking awesome for this guy. Everything's going exactly how you would hope that it would. And in this story right here, he's going to go a step further. And things are going to get even better. And his relationship with God and God's blessing on him is going to get even deeper and richer and sweeter. And yet we're going to see that he's, even in the midst of all this success, he's struggling with some really deep heart-level issues, heart-level issues that we ourselves are dealing and struggling with this morning. So let's hop into this text and see what this imperfect man can teach us about our perfect God. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, as we walk through these different stories, we find words and phrases that will appear dozens and even hundreds of times throughout the scriptures given for the very first time. You see, you see uh, in this verse, it says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's actually a phrase that will happen with the prophets all throughout the rest of the Bible. So what we see here in this story is that Abram becomes a prophet. For the first time ever, he uses the language of a prophet to describe Abram. And we'll see that throughout the, throughout the story leading up to this point, Abram's also described in other very relevant ways. Uh, in chapter 13 and chapter 12, he makes an altar and he offers pleasing sacrifices to God, which means that Abram's being described as a priest. So he's a prophet here. He was a priest. And then in last chapter, chapter 14, he took an army with him and he led that army into battle, which means he was being described as what? A king. So what we're seeing here is that Abram is being described as a prophet, priest, and king. So in him, all these different offices are converging in his life, which is a picture of God putting, back the Im- putting together the image of God that sin stole. See, God made people to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to him. He made people to charge into battle against evil and establish his kingdom. And he made people to have intimate relationship with himself and reveal that to other people. And Abram's becoming all of these things as he becomes a prophet, a priest, and a king. See, Adam was these things in the garden before sin fractured the image of God in him. Jesus will be these things again, and he makes us these things. And so what we see here is a picture of God putting back together the image of God in a broken man. Throughout this text, we are watching, throughout these stories, we are watching God's war against the serpent to redeem his people. And one way he does that is he puts back his image together in broken people who don't deserve it, but he loves to do it anyway. So good news this morning. If you're here this morning and you feel like your soul is broken and shattered into 10,000 pieces, we have a God who puts that back together as he is doing in Abram's life right here, putting back together everything that God purposed and intended for a human being to be. 
And we'll see God's war against the serpent unfold in the rest of the story. Now, the first thing he says to Abram is, we already talked about this. Fear not, Abram. Have you ever tried to tell yourself not to feel anxious before? Don't, don't feel anxious. How does that work? Not so well, but, but God can, can do what he wants to do. And he goes to Abram and says, Abram, fear not. And if you're reading the story up to this point, you might wonder, well, why is God telling Abram not to be afraid? Like, you take a look at it. Is there anything here that would indicate that Abram is afraid? Uh, I don't see anything right away. Yet, as you can, we continue to think about the passage, we're going to remember that Abram just won a war, and for the first time ever, he was changing the political status quo in Canaan. Up until this point, he's a non-player. At this point, right now, for the first and only time in the story until he dies, he's the one that's reshaping the way the world looks and works in Canaan, which means that other people who wanted power may have been out to get him. You see, when, when you follow God and you start to challenge society's idols, oftentimes our neighbors will misinterpret us as rivals wanting power. We don't. And oftentimes the way that following God upsets the power structures and idolatry in a society brings hostility and persecution against us. And maybe that could have been happening to Abram right here, is that if anyone remembers how big his army was, it was small. God used a small army to defeat a big enemy. If you remember how wealthy Abram was, he had, he had some money, but he refused the riches, and so Abram is vulnerable. He has no big army, he has no big wealth, and he might be the target of everyone else who's ambitious to come and rule the land at that point. He, he's the, the biggest guy to get right now, and God shows up to him and says, fear not, Abram, fear not, and then God gives him reasons to not be afraid. What are... What are those reasons that God gives him? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Our biggest need is not stuff. It's God. Abram didn't need a big army for security. He needed God. That's why God was said, he's his shield. So God doesn't give, intentionally does not give Abram a big army because he wants Abram to learn that a big army is not his shield, but God is his shield. What need, what vulnerability are you going through in your life? And could you please consider for a second that the reason that's there is so that God can teach you that you don't need that thing, you need God. And then he says, your reward shall be very great. And actually another way to translate the Hebrew in that sentence, it's not, it's kind of like the, the language is a little flexible there is it could be, I am your very great reward. I am your shield. I am your very great reward, which would have been so pointing at that point because Abram just, uh, just refused the biggest pile of money he ever had in his whole life. Like, he had the winning lottery ticket. He had the fortune available to him, but he felt like his God was calling him to leave it aside. He leaves it aside, and God says, hey, Abram, you have a fortune far better than a big pile of money. You have me. And so this text comes to us this morning, and I come to you this morning, and I remind you that if you have God, you are the richest person in the whole world. You're the richest person who ever lived right now. 
and you don't need any of the stuff that the society tries to tell you you need. You don't need any of the stuff your heart is trying to tell you to need. You're already the richest person in the whole world. And if you don't have God, he's coming to you this morning saying, I want to make you richer than you ever believed, not with stuff, but with me. With me. And we'd like to believe at this point that Abram could just accept this from God and say, you're right, you're all that I need. And then just go his way. And yet, and yet he's weaker than that because he's like you and he's like me. He's got these struggles he's going through. He's got things in his heart that he's processing through, things that are making it difficult for him to trust God. And he trusts God enough to share those with God. And God is gracious enough to hear him out and to answer him. Maybe God should have expected Abram to say, Yeah, you're right, God, you're enough. But even though Abram doesn't go there and he says, God, I have these other fears, God is gracious enough to hear him out and to answer him. And so that's where we're going to go now into their conversation. Let's take a look at verse 2 together. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So in this story, Abram and Sarah are introduced as childless. That's a problem that they're first introduced as having. They continue childless for at least 25 years into their 90s. Now the reason why that would have been especially a big challenge to them was because God had promised them that an offspring would come to them, a lot of them, a land would come to them, a big one, and that the kingdom of God would come from their children. And so their expectations for offspring would have not, they would have just not had a desire for offspring, they would have had expectations for offspring, and year after year their expectations would not have been met. Do you ever feel like that? As you're walking through your life following God, you have an expectation that he would give you a certain thing, that he would treat you a certain way, and year after year and day after day, you have to deal with that not being fulfilled. That is the journey Abram and Sarai are on at this point in the journey. Right? He's afraid of being childless for multiple levels. One level is in the ancient world, if you don't succeed in passing off your inheritance and your offspring to your Uh, to your biological descendant, you failed, right? All that's going to someone else now, someone else's kid, someone else's family, and that would be a defeat in the ancient world. Also, Abram and Sarai rightly came to believe that God's promise to rescue the world would come through their ability to have a child. So they were probably going into this year one, this is going to happen, all of our problems are going away, and then it didn't for 25 years, And he's feeling frustration and anger at that. It's like he has everything going right in his life, but there's this one thing that's just screwing everything up. So it just brings to mind this morning, what's your one thing, right? The one thing in the midst of all the blessing God has given you that's testing you more than anything else, whether or not you trust him. Because if you can't trust God with that one thing, then you actually don't trust him at the end of the day. So what is the one thing? And is God's gracious to leave these things in our lives because they're the great revealers that show what's deepest in our hearts. 
As, as long as God gives us everything that we want, we never find out what's in here and whether or not at the end of the day we truly trust him when all those things are stripped away from us. So Abram's one thing, his biggest problem, is that Eliezer of Damascus, someone from another nation, is going to inherit everything of his house. Abram was sent to rescue the nations, and all that he has is going to end up being inherited by the nations instead, and it looks like he's going to fail. Abram is afraid of failure in his life. That's, that's the fear that's governing him right now, failure. Abram's afraid that he's going to fail to measure up and accomplish his purpose in this life, and his dreams, his hopes, his visions, his goals are going to be shattered. How does God respond to this? Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. I love it when God uses direct speech. This guy, not your heir. Your son, that's your heir. And what God is demonstrating at this moment, that it's not Abram's circumstances that ultimately define reality, it's what God says. It's not Abram's expectations of how things are going to go that ultimately defines reality, it's what God says. When we're living in the world of anxiety, fear, and doubt, it's our expectations that are governing what, we, what the future will look like. When we live in the world of faith, it's what God said and what God's word is that governs what will ultimately happen to us and changes our emotional life. God says to him, this man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and he said, look towards heaven and see the stars if you're able to count them is God's way of saying you can't count them. You cannot count them. That's how many children you're going to have. Abram's in his 80s and God's telling him that's how many kids you're going to have. Now why does God show him the stars? I think God is showing him the stars because he's using a picture to reinforce his words in order to minister to Abram's heart. So an example of this is communion. Every week we take communion together because there's a picture that God gives us to reinforce his words to encourage our hearts. And so right here, God is using the picture of stars to reinforce his words to encourage Abram's faith. So how does that work? Now, if you look at stars in the sky, it's a very breathtaking experience. And if you go back to the beginning of the story in Genesis, you, you remember that in the beginning, God, what does he do to create the stars? He speaks. God speaks, and at his word, the heavens are filled with little print picks of light, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of them, that all display his ability to create something out of nothing in a moment. For Sarai to have a child would be for God to create something out of nothing in a moment. They're going to have to have faith that they have a God who can do a kind of thing like that if they're going to walk in faith that he's going to keep his promise. Yeah. 
And if God is able to fill the heavens with stars, he's able to fill Sarai's womb with a child and fill the earth with her offspring. So as Abram looks at the stars, he sees a picture of the abundance of his God, the promise-keeping God, and that he doesn't actually have to fear but can trust God to fulfill the promise that he's made. And it's amazing to look in God's word to grow in confidence in his character, and sometimes you just got to go out in nature and look at the things he's made if you're struggling to trust him. You truly believe that God can't help you, won't be faithful to you, won't serve you. Take a look tonight at the stars that come out. Take a look tonight at waterfalls and forests and just wonder and be amazed at the kind of God that he is. He's able to meet our needs because he's able to do all things. There's nothing that he can't do. He's the God of the impossible. And so he keeps all his promises. Now, when when God's saying that so shall your offspring be, like, like, I'm going to fill the world with the offspring. This is God saying afresh that he's going to undo the works of evil and the serpent. Because if you go back in Genesis, to, to the story of Genesis, Sarah's inabi- or, sorry, Eve's inability and difficulty in having children is a pointer to the serpent's works. Right? So God says to Eve, in pain and agony will you bring forth children. It's going to be tough to have them. It's going to be tough to raise them. Abram and Sarai can't have them. It's a sign that the world is broken and things are not as they are. So for God to promise and to give children is his way of saying that through you and through keeping my promises, I'm making the world right again. This is God's next step in putting to death the works of the serpent and bringing into the world his purposes. So as you read this, you should think God is promising to make all things right. That's what he's promising to Abram. That's what he's promising to Sarai, to make all things right. Which then leads us to verse 6. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is an amazing verse, and that is a mysterious verse, isn't it? A lot of you know that this is actually one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Like, when Paul is arguing in the book of Romans about how someone who's not in a relationship gets in a right relationship with God, this is the verse from the Old Testament that he goes to. This is a huge verse. So that begs the question, what does it mean that God counted it to him as righteousness? Is it, does anyone agree with me that's a really weird thing to say? Has anyone ever counted anything as righteous before? I don't think I ever have. And I think what's going on here is that Abram desperately needs something he doesn't have, namely righteousness. So Abram has a need, and God's going to provide for that need. He's going to give something to him that Abram needs. Now, righteousness is the act or the virtue of living in a right relationship with God and with people. So if Abraham lacked righteousness, he lacked being in a right relationship with God and with people, which means that he was subject to the judgment of God when he died. That's why Abraham's body is dying. That's why our bodies are dying, because we're not righteous, and so we're subject to the judgment of God. Now, you need righteousness 
You need to be in a right relationship with God and other people. But if you haven't, can someone else give that to you? Like, can someone just say, here you go? Like, I can hand you 20 bucks, right? But could I hand you my righteousness? It's impossible. Like, it's, it, it's, it's unfathomable that if you haven't lived righteously, that you could receive righteousness. Which is why I think this language here is being used because God's doing something that seems impossible to us. He's giving Abram something he can't see, he can't hold, he can't feel, he can't touch, but he needs more than anything else, which is why he gives him righteousness. So he's, this is the story of God meeting the greatest need of a man at the moment when he needed it most. Now in the beginning, in Eden, when it started out, Eden is a world of provision, right? There's just fruit falling off of trees. But after the sin, after the fall, Adam and Eve are sent out of Eden. So are all their descendants, which means, which means that their need goes up, but their deservedness for need goes down. So after Eden, people's needs increased, but their worthiness per, for that provision decreased. Do you see the problem? And yet, God shows who he is when he meets the needs of people, when they need it more, when they deserve it the least. Francis Chan wrote this book called Crazy Love. This title just sticks in my head. And the phrase that comes to me when I read this verse is crazy generous. God providing for people when they've sinned against him when they deserve it the least, and when they need it the most. How many of you feel comfortable being generous to people who are generous to you? How much harder does it come to be generous to someone when they sin against you repeatedly and wound you and hurt you and wrong you? Right? That's when I shrink back. That's when Ross is not abundant. That's when Ross hides. That's when Ross doesn't care for people like he should. And yet that's when God shows up for you and me. When we walk through life, sinning against God, treating him like he doesn't deserve, despising him, forsaking him, that's the very moment where he shows up and provides righteousness. He's crazy generous with us, church. He's crazy generous with you. He's crazy generous with me. It's utterly astounding. We've seen pictures of this so far, right, in the story leading up to this. Right, when Adam and Eve are about to leave Eden, God clothes them with animal skins. It's a really crazy moment in the story. At the moment of their greatest judgment, God is also providing for them. Like, what? Like, who does that? And what those animal skins are a picture of is that even though they're being sent out of Eve, Eden, because they don't deserve to be there, God's still giving them what they need most. He's giving them righteousness so that they can be in a right relationship with God even though they're outside of Eden. And one day when Jesus comes back to make all things right, they can get back. Even though God sends sinners out of Eden, he sends them out of Eden with what they need most. And he's offering us today through trust in him what we need most as we wait for God to come back and make all things right. There's a picture, right, of the skins covering Adam and Eve. And then there's Noah, right, offering a sacrifice and God accepting it as pleasing. And both of these things are pictures that 
lead up to what's plainly stated here, that God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Now, if we even thought about this at another level, we would think that as good as that sounds, there's something wrong with it. Because if God treats something that's unrighteous as if it were righteous, he's actually judging something wrongly. Like there is outrage in our world, and rightly so, when someone does something terrible and unrighteous, and the systems and the society wants to turn a blind eye to that and not punish that person, we're like, whoa, where's the justice? Are we not? There's outrage. And that's right. That's right. And so when we hear God count Abram as righteous, one thought we should have is, where's the justice? Right? He has done some pretty awful things, and he's about to do things more terrible, including sexually exploiting someone who is under his power. This is someone today that we would be outraged if they were forgiven. Abram ends up being someone today that we would be outraged if they were forgiven. And so I think we lose this in our modern day, this sense of a deep uh, desire for justice from God against evil. And so actually when we read that God starts treating someone who's unrighteous as if they're righteous, that's problematic. That's an issue. So what do we do with that? Well, what we do is we follow the story and the pictures in the story so far and where they lead us. If you remember, Adam and Eve are clothed in animal skins. Noah sacrifices an animal. In both cases so far, leading up to Abram, where God counts someone who's unrighteous to be righteous, something has to die so that they can live. Something has to die so that they can live. And what that's pointing to is that God always punishes evil. He always does. He never lets an act of evil goes unpunished. Which is why maybe if you're here and you're wondering why Christians worship a Savior who died on the cross, and think that's so weird and so strange and so brutal and just, just off, the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross is because we worship a God who is always just, always righteous, and always punishes every act of evil. And that's a good thing that evil gets punished. And so these pictures and symbols look forward to Jesus who put on. So this is really what happened when we get to Jesus. He put on unrighteousness, our unrighteousness, so that he could be punished in our place. So that God could put on Jesus' own righteousness on us. Right? We We said before that God met Abram's need when he needed it the most, when he deserved it the least. And we could add to that, he met his need when he needed it the most, when he deserved it the least, and when it cost God the most to give it. God paid the highest price so that he could give his righteousness to people who do not deserve it. He's crazy generous with you this morning. It's the kind of God that this story, the Bible, is depicting to us. It's one we would never conceive of, never come up with on our own. This is not the story you or I would write. The one where God himself ends up dying so that his people can live. But it's a story that we receive and that points us to the character of the God that we worship.
So what should be our response then to God's generosity? Verse 6 says of Abraham, he believed God. So God's after trust. He was after trust at first in the garden. Right? When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were supposed to trust God and not eat from the tree of knowing good and evil. And even after Eden, God always responds and provides for people who trust him. As soon as someone trusts God, he starts to treat them not according to what they deserve, but according to what they need. You see that distinction? As soon as someone starts to trust God, God starts to treat that person, starts to treat you, not according to what you deserve, but according to what you need, which is the biggest transition in the world there could ever be. This is the difference between not being God's child and being God's child. All of you parents who are out there know that every morning when you wake up, you have to start treating your children not according to what they deserve, but according to what they need. And as soon as someone trusts God, that's the way that he starts to deal with us. And that's actually what we need more than anything else. Now, I think in this story that Abram's infertility was meant to teach him about himself so that he could know who his God is. Right? So God promised him children and he makes their elapsed 25 years before he keeps his promise. What is God doing in his life in those 25 years? He's teaching his heart the lesson that even though he's insufficient, God is completely sufficient. And sometimes you can't learn that lesson apart from the pain, struggles, and trials that you're going through. And so God's actually really good as he waits to fulfill this promise because as he does so, he's progressively turning Abram into a man who trusts not in his own sufficiency, but in God's all-sufficiency. So really, ask yourself this morning, what trial are you going through this morning that you're despising that God actually wants to use to teach you about your own insufficiency so that you can truly look to God for his all-sufficiency? I think that's how we're supposed to respond to our trials as a community. Rather than the anxiety and fear we feel at the gap between who we are and what we wish was the case, instead we let that gap become who we are and who our God is. And look to him as the one who's sufficient in our place when we're insufficient. Church, everything we go through is meant to lead us up to the joy of the full forgiveness and freedom of being loved and accepted by God. Like everything. Like everything is meant to be a pathway into the joy of free forgiveness. Right? This, this, this way of accepting Abram is a way of humbling his pride. He can't come to God on his own. And it's a way of healing his deficiency. God still accepts him. The gospel can't bring you any lower than it does, and it can't bring you any higher than it, it does. And that's the way it sets you free. That's the way it sets you free. You can't hope in yourself anymore. If, if God's a God who counts unrighteous people righteous, you can't hope in yourself anymore. You have to hope in him. And so this morning, I just invite you, invite you, if you are struggling to come to God because you, don't, you think you don't need him, or you think you're too bad 
that he won't have you. Both of those things are a lie. And his arms are open wide. He's a generous God who accepts people who believe in him and who are humble. If we accepted this as a community, we would truly have an otherworldly joy and peace and humility about us. Like we would transform from people who are focused on ourselves to people who are focused on God and focused on other people. It's really the gospel that severs the cord of our fear, that severs the cord of our pride, that severs the cord of our shame, and helps us become joyful, free people who know God and love other people. Like when you, when you accept this, you start to be with the Father more than anything else because there's nothing else that satisfies like he does. So my prayer, my hope, my heart this morning is that we would be re-amazed and awed that even us could be Christians. Please, please, church, let's endeavor to wake up and be in awe morning by morning that God would let such people, even such as us, come to him and be his children. And if you are not at this place yet and don't know him and love him yet, just the, the door is wide open, right? The story is here for people like you and people like me to start believing in him and start coming to him. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you made the ultimate provision for us in Jesus. Please help us to be awed and amazed this morning at all that you are for us. Help the person who feels like they don't need you to need you. Help the person who feels too insufficient for you to remember and believe that you make the insufficient sufficient. You make us sufficient, Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's invite you now into a time of prayer and reflection. Just pray. Are you in awe? Are you in awe of what God has done? And what's one weakness, one struggle, one insecurity that's trying to, God is using to lead you into a deeper experience of himself?